You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. We are in the third week of our Change Your World series. In our last series, we looked at the life of Abraham and we were looking at what kind of partners God pursuing. That's, that's really at the individual level. In this series, we're asking what kind of church are we going to be? What's the blueprint for the kind of church we are building here in Missoula? And we're looking at this story of Ezra and Nehemiah. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that originally this was one book. And about 300 AD, about the time of origin, they split this up into two books. And so most Bibles that you'd grab today have those as two separate books. But it's really one story. There's a number of repeating patterns in this story. And, and we're going to just mention a few. But um, kings send out a group of people. There's a proclamation. And that leader that leads those people out faces opposition and then there's some kind of strange anticlimax. And we see this pattern happen three times. And then the entire story has a strange anticlimax where things just feel unresolved. And I really believe that one of the points of the story is that they were people and we are people that need a Messiah. This story... Ezra and Nehemiah combined uh, is a um, chiasm. That's the word. It's a chiasm. And so we talked about this a couple weeks ago. I just want to remind you about this. At the A level, at the bookend level, we have Zerubbabel uh, returning to Israel with a group of returnees. There's a long list. And uh, I think... Logan mentioned last week that these are the kinds of lists that, that put, put us Westerners to sleep, but actually there's something being communicated in these, in these lists oftentimes. And then there's a celebration, the festival of booths, uh, Sukkot. And then the re-implementation implement, re of Torah. At the next level, we see the building of the temple in opposition Zerubbabel is the main character in that story. At, in Nehemiah, the building of the wall in opposition is led by Nehemiah himself. And then at the next level, we see Ezra's return and Nehemiah's return. And at the center of this chiasm, there's something that the author wants us to focus in on. There's something that the author wants to highlight. And this is kind of the theme for the whole story. And it's that the people of Israel did not separate themselves. Well, this is the part of the chiasm that we land on today. So we're going to look at this, this idea of separating ourselves. What kind of separation is God looking for? And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we considered this, that, that really God's looking for distinctness not isolation. And we brought up this picture of tassels. And if you've ever seen a, a Jewish person, a Jewish man in particular, I don't believe the women wear these that often, 
but in particular the Jewish men at the four corners, they have these tassels hanging down. And they were commanded by God to wear these tassels. Now they were told that they were to have one blue tassel. And that's all they were told. And so they figured, okay, the blue represents a priest. And so we're going to have 11 white tassels to represent the uh, 11 tribes that are not Levites. And one blue tassel to represent the one tribe that is the Levites. And so that's the tribe where the uh, priests come out of. But then also Israel is supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And so as Israel lives amongst the people, they're to point their neighbors to who their God is. That's what a priest does. A priest helps a person connect to their God. And you and I have that same calling to be a kingdom of priests, to point people to our God. Now notice that they don't separate, they don't isolate this blue tassel from the white tassels. If the person wearing the tassels falls into the mud, the blue tassel gets as much mud on it as the white tassels. If you're in a messy environment and you get your tassels messy, the blue tassels right there with the white tassels. And so we're called to be distinct, but not isolated from our friends and our neighbors. And we said that changing the world takes work and you are the worker. Whatever change you're hoping to see the church manifest, maybe it's the way we greet people. Maybe it's the way we love on people. Maybe it's the way we uh, see the needy within our community and we chase after that. Whatever it is that you're hoping that the church will do, I bet you have a part to play in that. I bet God's putting a seed in your heart because you are the worker to help make that possible. In the last week, uh, Logan preached on the first half of Ezra. Zerubbabel was the main character, and he's bringing restoration to the temple. And the narrative, Logan said, presents a new exodus. But the results are incomplete. They're somewhat disappointing. And in 4.1, we're told that the enemies of Judah want to come and help rebuild the temple. But Zerubbabel says, you have no part in this. And his policy of cultural isolation creates enemies of Israel. Now, sometimes isolation is necessary. I think in terms of someone who's coming out of a life of addiction, whose friends have participated in their addiction and led them on the path of addiction. Many times that person needs to completely jump out of that friend group and jump into new community and build new patterns. So in some cases, isolation, especially at the individual level, is not, not a problem and sometimes it's even advised. But at the corporate level, it can backfire and generate unnecessary tension with culture. And as Logan described, the problem as seen in Ezra 3, God was not present at the temple. If you think in terms of when the tabernacle out in the wilderness was first 
put into operation. They started holding services. The presence of God descended on the tabernacle. And then when Solomon uh, dedicated the temple that he built, the presence of God, it's like it's, it's a big deal that the presence of God comes down and fills the temple. In Ezra, there's no mention of it. We're just told that the, the patriarchs, the, the older generation, the guys with white hair like mine, if you can see this, probably too short. The older generation that had seen the temple, seen Solomon's temple, had seen God's presence in the temple, they wept. They wept. And, and as I was sitting next to you last week while Logan was preaching, I was thinking, man, what if we go through all this work here at Mission Ridge and God doesn't show up? a sobering thought for me. So the blueprint that we talked about last week that Logan presented is avoiding messy people doesn't usher in God's presence. God shows up when we engage the mess, invite him into it. And so we need to partner with God in ministry his way. Well, today we're going to look at the second half of Ezra, Ezra 7 through 10. And the primary character is Ezra. And he's bringing about the restoration of Torah and community. And in and, and some of it he does well, and some of it he doesn't do so hot. So we'll take a look at his story. Ezra 7 reads this way. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of, oh, there's a whole list of names here that I, I would just absolutely butcher, so I'm not going to do that. There's seven generations and seven more generations. Um, and then at the end of five, it says, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now, there's a message within this genealogy. We'll talk about that in footnotes. It's kind of uh, gee whiz information. But um, I don't want to turn those guys over in the grave by butchering the names. So we'll press on. Uh, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And they went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. Some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month which was in the seventh year of the king. For in the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. Wait a minute. You told us that he enters into Jerusalem on this day, but you back up and tell us that on the first day of the first month, that's when you left. And oh, by the way, I bet he repeats what time he ends up in Jerusalem again. Just to highlight this point. But the first day of the first month is the day that they left Egypt as part of their exodus. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Yep, just repeated that. Huh, baby chiasm. Do, 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 do. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law, the Torah, 
of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rule in Israel. And then the rest of Ezra 7, we're going to see Artaxerxes give a decree. And in this decree, we're told that the people of Israel are sent out by a king, that the people will carry gold and silver and for offering to the Lord. And then in verse 17, we're told that they're to make offerings to their God. This is very Exodus-like. This is another Exodus narrative. So in the first half of Ezra, we have an Exodus narrative with Zerubbabel, and now we have an Exodus narrative with Ezra. I wonder what we'll see next week with Nehemiah. But Artaxerxes says this, You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of your king. Now, this word for law here is not Torah. It's a different word. We'll talk about that in footnotes. But there should be a different law for their God and a different law for the king. Yet Artaxerxes uses the term that's used for the, the, uh, the kings of his time, the foreign kings of their time. Um, Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment, for confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. That sounds nice, doesn't it? (laughs) But this is Ezra's specific role, the reestablishment of the priesthood. That's what he's called to. And then the first half of Ezra 8, we're going to see a genealogy. And this is similar to the list that we see in Ezra 2, in the first story, that the first half of this book, when it's this repeated pattern again. It's another element of the repeated pattern. In the latter half of Ezra 8, we're going to see the people prepare for travel. There's prayer and fasting. The priests are set to guard the offerings of gold, silver, of the different animals that they will sacrifice. And then we're told that they set out to Jerusalem. And then once they get to Jerusalem, they give an accounting of the gold and silver and the animals that they're going to sacrifice. And then they make their sacrifice. This reminds me of a military deployment where you have this plan that says, hey, this is, this is, how, this is the plan we're going to execute. These are the things that we're going to do. These, this is the order of the tasks. And then you accomplish the, the deployment. You, you exercise the plan. You fulfill the plan. This is written like a legal document, which is interesting to me. And then Ezra 9, we see the problem. After these things have been done. The officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not 
separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Hold on to that term, holy race. That's going to be important. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. In other words, the leader has been leading the people down this problematic path. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the churned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Ezra and the people that have just returned from exile, they are undone. The very thing that led to the exile in the first place, they found that the people have been living out. This includes the people that came in the first six chapters of this story, the first half of this book. If you remember, Logan mentioned there was a 15-year point where the work of the temple was not being accomplished. And so there was over 20 years of time that took place between chapter 1 of Ezra and chapter 7 of Ezra. And Ezra is finding problems within the community already. I do want to say this about the people of Israel at this moment. They were willing to honestly look at the problems, at, the, at their failures, at their sin. They were willing to take an honest look. And I think that is redemptive. The rest of Ezra 9 is Ezra's prayer. It is, it is a long prayer. Um, it's an emotional prayer by Ezra. And I think as a leader, he, he's really not sure what to do. And I've come to some of these crossroads before. I'm like, God, I'm not sure how to move forward here. What do you want to do here? Well, let's pick up in Ezra 10, verses 1 through 5. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women for the people from the people of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, to, to send the wives and the children away. According to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. 
Arise, for it is your task, and we will, and we are with you. I love this. Hey, I hatched a plan, and it's yours to execute. Good luck with that. Beautiful. Let me wash my hands while I'm at it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all the Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said, so they took the oath. Wow. What a solution, huh? Does this sound redemptive to you? You marry the wrong people, you have children, and you need to send them all away. Man, I think anytime that we find hope at the expense of others, there's a problem. Jesus wasn't willing to live that out. He was willing to provide hope at his own expense. And that's the kind of disciples we're called to be. Well, I told you to hang on to that term, holy race, because it's problematic. It's unscriptural. It's what white supremacists use today. And if they're using this chapter as the basis for using that, that term, they're misreading their Bible. I'll tell you that much. So Deuteronomy 7 says this, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me. What's the problem that God is trying to guard them from? Idolatry. To serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Are we supposed to send people away or are we supposed to deal with idolatry? We're supposed to deal with idolatry. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That word people is a different word than race. We will look at that here in just a minute. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So in Deuteronomy 7, which is where they're, which is out of the Torah, which, is, which Ezra is supposed to know, it's misquoted. It's a wrong phrase that the people bring to him. The people tell the man who's supposed to know his Torah that we are supposed to be a holy race, but that's not what it's supposed to be. It's a holy people. Deuteronomy 7 says, Am Kodesh. Kodesh means holy. Ezra 9 says, Zira Kodesh. It's a different word. There's a different sense to that word. Zira is seed or race. Am is people. And by the way, how many times in Torah do we see a patriarch marry a foreign woman? It happens over and over again. Does the patriarch start worshiping the foreign god? Or does the patriarch lead that person to worship his god? 
the latter. That's what's supposed to happen. Misquoting scripture leads to misapplication every time. We need to know our scriptures. And the prophets speak directly to this. This is, this is a live feed update. This is, this is a, a present-day Twitter post or, or a Facebook post, only this is from a prophet. <laughs> I know some people think they're prophets, and they're not. They think they're speaking for God. God's shaking his head. But this is actually a prophet speaking about this particular situation. He says this, Judah has been faithless, and the abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. He's been idolatrous. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. In other words, for you and I, we can't come here and worship on Sundays, worship God, and then Monday through Saturday, worship something completely else. Worship something different. Jesus says you can't worship God and mammon, God and wealth. It's incompatible. Does God have your whole heart? That is what the question that's being raised here. And then he says this, and the second thing you do, in other words, this is like it. Here's one thing, you are worshiping foreign gods because of the women that you're chasing after. And the second thing is like it. You cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Wait a minute, Lord. Didn't you read the end of Ezra? We solved this. We sent those people away. We took care of this problem. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This passage is being spoken to a specific people at a specific time that we could, we could apply it to ourselves once we understand the proper application of how it was written in the first place, the people that sent their wives and their children away were breaking a covenant. They thought they were establishing a covenant. God says, I'm still considering the first covenant. You can't send people away because of your sin. That doesn't solve the problems that you created. You can't send people away because of your sin. He did not make them, I'm sorry, did he not make them one? It's God that brings husband and wife together. It's God that brings them together. It's God that brings them together. With a portion of the spirit in their union, and what was the one God seeking godly offspring, not a holy race. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The prophet is saying, Israel, you failed in this. 
Israel, you failed. Ezekiel speaks to this moment as well. He says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. If you and I sitting here can recognize that saying the the wives and the children away, if you and I sitting here could figure that out, do you think the nations couldn't figure that out? And God's name was being profaned because of their actions. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from your all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. My friends, when we try to solve our sin problems our way, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. Whether you have a hard heart and, you, and we can see it because you're not doing the things the way God tells you to do, you're chasing after things that God says, don't chase after that. That's going to be problematic for you. Whether you're, we see your hard heart that way or we see your hard heart through this rigid doctrine, this legalism that says, send them away. That's how we deal with this. Let's just get rid of them. Let's just hide the fact that that our daughter is pregnant. Let's just hide the fact that we failed God. That's not a humble reproach. We can't make ourselves clean. It's God that does that. I can't change my heart. It's God that does that. I need God's Spirit in me. I need the promise of the Holy Spirit today and every day. And I need God's ability to live out the things He's calling me to. There's so many times where I'm reading the scriptures, I'm like, Lord, I need you to change my heart because <laughs> I, I don't know how to live this out. Like, I see it, I recognize it, I know you're true. How do I get rid of my bitterness? How do I deal with my shame? How do I deal with my with the things that want to rule in my heart? And so the blueprint is this: when people fail, we will partner in restoration. When people fail, as a church, we won't send them away. We won't tell them to go figure it out and come back when they're done. We will partner in restoration. When people fall into a ditch, we'll be there to extend a hand. When people are pushed down by others, 
we'll be there to help them back up. And when people keep digging the same hole over and over and over again, only to fall into that same hole that they just got done digging, we'll stay close. We'll stay close enough that when they're ready to let go of the shovel and ready to actually leave that ditch, that we can help them out, that we can partner in restoration. And our first call to action is we need to ask for a new heart. I don't know how many times I've asked God for this. I'm sure it's numbered in the gazillions. And it's not that the first time I asked wasn't sufficient because that was sufficient to start my relationship with Christ. But said I found new areas of my heart that I hadn't exposed to his lordship yet. There are new areas in my heart where I'm like, Lord, I'm 50. Why do I still struggle with resentment or lust or a host of other things? Why do I still struggle as a dad, as a husband, as a man of God? Why do I still struggle like that? And so I ask him for a new heart. And if you see a friend that's continually heading down the path of addiction or, or broken relationship after broken relationship or, or some, something else, and you're like, man, I think they need what Christ has given to me, a new heart. We don't expect those folks to get cleaned up before they show up. We just invite them in. They don't have to have everything figured out. In fact, they don't have to have anything figured out to show up and start journeying with us and what it looks like to have their heart changed by Christ. And so we invite those folks in. You invite them into your care group, into your life-transforming group, into a one-on-one relational discipleship relationship where you share with them from the scriptures the things that God has shown you over the years but we invite people to ask for a new heart. The second thing that we need to do is we need to pray for each other. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. When you pray for someone, you're inviting God into that circumstance. And And that may be the very first time God is introduced into that set of circumstances. I've seen this take place over and over and over again. A family that's so dysfunctional, so broken. They can't go a couple hours without yelling and screaming at each other. They get called over to their house, pray for them. A couple days later, another phone call. This time I'm there with the police, praying for them. Over and over and over again, praying for them. Other people invited into their lives, other people journeying with them, other people leading them away from the path of destruction that they've lived all their lives. 
and seeing God show up again and again and again because people were willing to pray. I'm to confess to you, and you're to confess to me. In my care group, I talk about what happens in my world. My life-transforming group, I go deeper. When I'm with the two other guys, I could, I could go deeper. I could talk about deeper issues. But I talk about those things so that you could pray for me and I could pray for you. Every one of us will need that in order to be healed. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer, the one praying is healed in this process. Number three, be a reconciler. Whatever Christ has reconciled you from, that is probably your ministry. Whatever he has reconciled you from, I bet God has in some way, shape, or form want to use you to reconcile others to himself because you've been down that path that someone else needs, that path of reconciliation. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says that we have been reconciled by Christ and God through us is reconciling others. I think sometimes as Christians, we want to run long and hard and fast from our past. We want to hide from the things that we've done in the past and hope that no one catches on that that's who we were. But that's part of our ministry of reconciliation. We don't come to church just to sit in the pews and celebrate God just to be bystanders. You are the worker of the kingdom of heaven. God wants to use you to draw people to himself. Be a reconciler. And then finally, we need to approach the failures of others humbly. Galatians 6 says, you who are spiritual, restore your brother who's caught in a transgression, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I've had so many godly men and women live this out before me. My first mentor, he would come, he would come and my wife would call him sometimes 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night we'd be in an argument and I'm just, I'm a mess. And he would come and talk me off the proverbial ledge. And he did it with such gentleness. And then when he was done talking, when we were done talking and we were done praying, he would hug me with a hug that just restored life to my soul because he was humble he was saying to me, I'm just like you. I could act out the same way. But Christ is changing my heart, and I think he's going to change your heart too. We're to bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
but we have to do that humbly. The story that we just read in Ezra, that wasn't a humble solution. That wasn't a solution that considered the humanity of others, of the wise and the children that are being sent away. How we handle the mistakes of others matters. When people fail, as a church, we're going to partner in restoration. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.